Christmas is just around the corner. So if you're looking for great gifts, we've got you covered with our new Australian Geographic Christmas gift guide. You'll find a large range of gifting options for every budget, including telescopes, games, and educational toys. Shop at Cubidae Books or online at australiangeographic.com forward slash catalog. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm recording at the newly renovated Australian Museum. With me is Chief Scientist Chris Helgen. Here, we talk about the importance of future-focused museums and the crucial role they play during not only the current pandemic, but also climate change. So I'm really excited to be talking to Chris today on this episode of Talking Australia. Now, I'm really excited for the podcast today because we're recording from the Australian Museum, newly renovated, and I'm here with Chris Helgen, the Chief Scientist of the Australian Museum. First question, of course, what's your favourite thing about the Renos? I love the new big open spaces in the museum. Now, you know, I'll talk to you about the science exhibits, incredible <laughs> stuff, but I'm just thrilled. You know, people in their mind's eye, I think, are going to remember what it looked like. And when they come in and they get their bearings, you know, we've got these grand spaces that are just, you know, big and able to be places where people can gather and discuss and come in. Uh, and, and on all sides are these fantastic exhibits you can see. So I'm most excited just about you know the literal transformation of the entire indoor space into something that is, you know, kind of these soaring, sweeping, big spaces that we didn't have before. And, you know, most natural history museums have spaces like that. And that just, you know, puts us, puts us right in the middle of the world greats. Mm. And you're a relatively new addition to the Australian Museum. You just took over from Rebecca Johnson as chief scientist. What's that been like for you and how are you settling into the job and what's your favourite thing about it so far? Yeah, that's right. I'm pretty new. I started in June. so Very uh, new. <laughs> pretty new, yeah, exactly. And what a time to be coming on board, both with the renovations, which is you know very exciting, such a spectacular time to be joining the crew. Uh, but then also, of course, with the challenges of the year, as we all know. And uh, I've, last few years, I've been in Adelaide. I was a professor at the University of Adelaide there. And uh, so came across uh, and we're just thrilled to make the move. Um, my wife is is from Australia. I'm from the U.S. originally. Uh, we loved Adelaide and we loved Sydney. And so um, Rebecca Johnson was a very good friend of mine. And we uh, there's a, there's a joke because until a few years ago I was at the Smithsonian for quite a long time. Some people are joking we've made a bit of like a prisoner swap where we stood on the bridge <laughs> and she went off to Smithsonian and I came into her role too. She used to visit me there, and I used to come and visit her in her office here. And it just it uh, it has a good feeling. Of of how we've kind of uh, swapped places a little bit. But uh, um, I'm thrilled to be uh, taking the helm of science here. The collections are amazing here. Uh, our researchers are fantastic here. And the chance to sort of you know, put my stamp on our scientific content across all the different pieces of the museum uh, is a really rewarding thing for me, too. So I couldn't be more thrilled. I love museums. Uh, and um, this is one of the best. Mm. And when you talk about your stamp, like, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So my most of my uh, upbringing as a scientist has unfolded in museums. And so 
um, I'm pretty fluent in the world of kind of natural history collections behind the scenes. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that we're opening our doors again is that, you know, the combination of all the magic that happens kind of back of house, behind the scenes, and the magic that happens front of house with, you know, the people flowing through the museum, the kind of, um, the sort of uh, buzz, you know, of the halls as there's so many people there. You know, that's what I enjoy uh, most about an institution like this. So we're, we're both educating, which is most what people think, you know, kind of as museums putting the front foot out there. We're out there um, explaining things to the public. They can come and learn. Um, but just as importantly, and to me even more, really, is the fact that we are um, guiding research on these big collections that have amassed over decades and even centuries in the world's great natural history museums like this one. So what you'll see from me is an emphasis on you know, the traditional strengths of museums like this, which is things like natural history disciplines, biodiversity, studying the richness of life on Earth, and making sure that uh, you know, as generations of scientists turn over, that we continue to bring in the right expertise that can look after those collections and study them and kind of, what I might say, make them sing, you know, really make the most of the research materials that we have here. Uh, and then also, um, over time, I think we'll find ways to put, you know, even more of those collections, more of the types of um, types of life forms that we study here, you know, out into the galleries so people can see them more. We've got dinosaurs in front and center here as we reopen, which is amazing. Great for kids, great for families, great for all of us. Um, but over time, I'd love to see, you know, even more and more, not just birds and mammals and dinosaurs, but, you know, so much of the richness of life on Earth on display. Those are just a few <laughs> few things that, um, that I'll let you know you'll be seeing more of over time. Mm. And now I'm going to preface this question by saying, I know you're not 100 years old, but... What's the big differences between, you know, working at a museum today versus, you know, 100 or 200 years ago? Yeah. Well, I mean, great question. And part, part of the um, romance of working in a museum is that you have uh, institutions that have these great depths of history. I mean, 193 years here at the Australian Museum, um, that's pretty remarkable. And in fact, that's older than the Smithsonian where I used to work. And, and so, uh, you know, for um, a young country in European terms, um, these, this is a remarkably old institution. Many universities can claim the same, uh, of course, but the traditions are often kind of more resonant and more unbroken across museums. And part of it is that um, the whole entire core of institutions like these, uh, natural history museums, uh, is really about the collections that amass over time. So that's what we can put on display, that's what we can study, and that's what we can safeguard. And over time, if we look after them well, um, they continue to remain here, and the amount of information we have about them you know, builds and builds and builds. You can think about it a little bit as a, as a time machine, right? You know, you can't go back to Sydney 200 years ago and see what it looked like, you know. Uh, but, you know, in, in a remarkable way, you, you kind of can with a natural history museum because you can go back and find skeletons and bones and skins and archival notebooks and, you know, indigenous artifacts, a whole range, a universe of materials that, you know, if studied and looked after through time is a time capsule that we can come back to again and again. And that's what we do in natural history museums. And so, um, that ethic that, you know, things once they are kind of enshrined here as part of the collection that we look after them, call, I sometimes say in the museum we're 
in what we call the forever business. That's really what sets us apart. So that we intend for you know the objects that we are responsible for uh, to be here in the uh, behind the scenes collections and occasionally on display 100, 200, 300 years from now. And you know that's a remarkable thing. People think often of museums as places that mostly celebrate the past, you know, that are kind of historically focused, that kind of look back on our histories, you know, in the deepest sense, whether it's dinosaurs or, um, you know, human and cultural histories or, um, you know, looking at um, what lived in Sydney 50 or 100 years ago. We think about them as looking back. But um, the truth is, the honest truth is that I have not been able to find any institution you know, as a as a variety of institution that is actually more for future focused than museums, and that's kind of counterintuitive to what we think. But no other institution absolutely explicitly intends for the things they're responsible to kind of be existing in their present form, as beautiful as they are now, as kind of you know um, as uh, remarkable as they are now. Uh, 50, 100, 150, 200 years from now. And the reason we, we think that is because every day we're making use of and studying materials that do have that history, you know, that have been in the museum that long. And you think about what a cost that was, you know, what an effort that took. The battles against, you know, entropy and um, the ravages of time, you know, that's an incredible societal investment, you know, whether, whether it's a, a, a beautiful cloak of feathers that, you know, came from Hawaii 250 years ago, or whether it's a, a wombat skull that was, you know, collected last year. Um, these are things that are points in time, uh, milestones, you know, wayfinding objects that we know will be there in the future. And we're going to need them because the world's changing very fast and we're going to want to know what happened and you know, make predictions. Speaking of a fast-changing world, yeah. you were quite vocal during COVID and the role that museums can play in the context of COVID and the current pandemic. Can you kind of flesh out what you meant by that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, museums for for quite a long time, for decades actually, uh, one of the things they've been doing scientifically is sounding the alarm about things like pandemics. And that's because you have in institutions like this, um, you know, groups of scientists that have um, kind of unparalleled expertise in certain parts of what I call the tree of life, you know, the different kinds of organisms that they uh, are the world experts on. So we have, you know, in museum collections, um, the people who know, for example, how to tell mosquitoes apart best, right? You know, and all the, the diseases that mosquitoes or ticks or chiggers or fleas or lice can carry. Um, you know, most of the mammals that we're most concerned about uh, in terms of disease reservoir or spread uh, or uh, you know, pandemic transfer are things like mice and rodents and bats. You know, if you actually go to where can you find the greatest world experts in any group like that, it's not at any university in the world, tend to really, unlike most other subject matter. They're always at natural history museums, right? And so these are the groups of people that get called on to um, you know, be able to know these groups best, their biology, how to tell different species apart. Um, something like a, the, the current coronavirus pandemic, um, 
you know, eminently predictable and predicted widely in the literature, right? And others that emerged um, almost like clockwork, you know, in recent history, we had the emergence of SARS and another one called MERS, and now we have COVID-19. Um, and most of these types of coronaviruses seem to have a biology that's associated with bats. Um, there's something like 1,300 species of bats in the world, and uh, um, from one to the next, amongst the closely related species, you know, it, it, it takes an, a, a remarkable expert eye to tell them apart, and yet the biology of each is kind of tied up in millions of years of independent evolution. So each one of those bat species has its own genome, it has its own disease susceptibility, it has its own biology, whether it lives in this type of cave or another. And so working out the questions of where does, say, this coronavirus hide out in nature when it's not causing a, a global human pandemic, uh, a very simple question, one that's not yet resolved for many of the most important diseases that we're worried about in a pandemic sense. So, um, you know, remember a few years ago we were facing the challenge of an Ebola epidemic coming out of Africa. Um, that's a disease that could have, you know, potentially even much greater impact because of various aspects of, of its biology. Uh, we still don't know for sure where, bio, where Ebola lives when it's not uh, wreaking havoc and, on human health. And so um, what I mean by how museums are involved in this is if we want to know with ba which bats are involved in spreading which coronaviruses, those are puzzles that ultimately get solved in natural history museums because that's where we learn how to tell bats apart. That's where we have the genetic data for most species of bats tucked away in freezers and in drawers. And ultimately, when answers are found to these questions, it really... Uh, comes down to museum collections. Again, another thing that people wouldn't really realize, some of the examples I've thrown out there just quickly are that in the first decade of the 20th century, it was a uh, scientist who knew fleas best, working at the Natural History Museum in London, uh, who finally uh, figured out which species of flea uh, carries the Black Death, the bubonic plague. You know, and this is, so that is a disease that's caused by a particular bacterium that lives on a particular flea that in turn lives on a particular set of animals in different parts of the world. And without knowing that, you know, without knowing that chain of biology, including which is the flea that you have to be looking out for, you know, you are down for the count when you're trying to understand that disease. Now, we're not so worried about Black Death anymore because it's treatable with antibiotics. But each of the viruses that emerges these days is something we don't have a silver bullet for, generally speaking, each one of these is something that could take, you know, one, two, three years, uh, if we're lucky, uh, to be producing a vaccine for. Will we see other pandemics like this? Yes, we will. Um, how could museums help us get ready for them? Um, scientific uh, funding bodies and mainly governments could help pour money into museums so that a number of experts are right there ahead of time telling us which bats are, are which, which, what their distributions are, and what the inventory of viruses is in each of them. And then we'd be in with a chance. The moment something showed up in Wuhan, we'd have an information to compare against, and we'd say, okay, that looks like it's coming out of this particular species of bat, and we know it lives in Wuhan, and it crosses the border down into northern Vietnam, and um, there's a few records of it in Laos, and it only lives in a particular type of cave, and or it only lives you know, in a particular soil type rainforest, and, this is where we ought to be looking for it, and you know, this is this is th th all of those things. We'd be well armed to 
to know more about. And um, I'm going on a bit, but you know, some people in the past, when I've myself warned that this is something we ought to be ready for, you know, before this current episode, um, it's often brought up. Well, that would be awfully expensive, right, to uh, be putting in the kind of investment that you'd need to, you know, be out there for several thousand mammal species, you know, bats and rodents and whatnot, um, to get ahead of this and uh, inventory those those species and those viruses. When an episode like this happens, it reminds us how expensive it is not to have done that. And it's a laughable comparison, right? The amount of scientific research, you know, the, that would be funded to solve problems like this, you know, in uh, huge numbers kind of all at once uh, is dwarfed by the impacts that, you know, pandemic disease has when we, it hits us and we have no idea what's going on. So, you know, we're still coming to the end of 2020 and we're still not sure exactly which bat this came from, if it definitely was a bat or was it something else? What was the chain of transmission? Did a bat give it to a pangolin, give it to a person? We don't actually know those things. Those things are knowable and museums are actually the, the scientific resource that is the chain along the way in solving those problems. That's really the answer. It is museums. It's not really much else. It's museums working, of course, with with health experts and you know all kinds of other expertise. But um, you know, when we finally crack this, say in the decades to come, and we really you know have the pandemic systems in place to you know be able to respond to these things, we'll be looking at museums as probably one of the main scientific resources that got us there. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Speaking of expensive ecological breakdowns, I'm wondering, going back to you talking about, you know, museums being future focused, what are museums' roles during the age of climate change? Yeah, just in the same way, they're, they're there to help us understand um, in a what we might think of as like a hard science, empirical way, how the world is changing, right? Because... Um, Again, museums are the main place in the world where society has decided to archive things for perpetuity. And, you know, that includes with natural history museums, biological samples of all kinds. So they really end up being the only place where we can go to um, to see the hard evidence of how things have changed. So, you know, how, how have the distributions of species changed, you know, decade by decade as the warm, world has warmed a little and now a lot, right? Um, what are the, how, you know, when we feed that into mathematical models, where are we going? You know, what are the, what are the data that help us, you know, drive predictions about what's going to happen? All of those things are, or many of, many of that kind of, th those kind of data are the things that are in natural history museum collections. So, um, you know, in a museum, it's like say like the Australian Museum, you know, we might have um, thousands of specimens of a particular kind of rat or mouse, a common animal, you know, from many different parts of Australia, many different habitats, many different geographic areas. And a common question, let's say, when you give someone a tour behind the scenes and you have this wealth 
of information for, you know, lots of different species like that. They say, well, do you really need that many, right? I mean, do you need so many specimens? You've got a lot of that one. You know, you, know, you need to concentrate on something else. Um, the reality of it is, as scientists in these institutions, what we actually want to be doing is, you know, preserving as much biology as we can from as many places as we can, from as many times as we can. And that's what sums up across the decades and centuries in our cabinets to be able to answer questions like this. It's not stamp collecting where we want one of every species of mouse. And that's what people might imagine, you know, the way that that's they might. That's definitely what I was imagining. Right. That's, that's what people would imagine. And that's, that's how, you know, if you were an avid collector, that might be how you built a portfolio of something or other. That's not how museums collect. I mean, ultimately, we want our collections to be as representative as possible. So, you know, we'd love to have every species of beetle uh, or mouse. And, and so we do aim for that. Um, but the point is, every single specimen is a data point that tracks a particular place in a particular time. So, you know, let's say the question was heavy metal poisoning like mercury. You know, was that... Um, is, is that something that's changed over time in the soils of a particular neighborhood in Sydney? How would you answer that question? You wouldn't really have anywhere to go to get historical data or soil samples from anywhere. How people tend to answer a question like that is they say, okay, you know, let's look at all the um, noisy miners, you know, or let's look at all of the uh, rainbow lorikeets or the bush rats, you know, from, from, from the area, and let's look at them. We've got some from 1860, and we've got another series from 1910. We've got another series from, you know, 1963. And you, you do the chemical comparisons, and that's how you understand maybe how a pollutant or a contaminant or something, you know, has appeared at different points in time. And, um, but, yeah, think about it. I mean, the chemistry that's locked up in a skeleton or a skin of a particular species, let's say it's a shell or, you know, a bird's skin. One thing that's amazing about that is, you know, the chemistry, for the most part, that inhabited that organism when it was alive is still there to be studied, to be interrogated in the physical material that's in the collection. What do I mean? You can go and study its DNA. You can study you know, the proteins that made up its body and its bones. And then you can study things like radionuclides or contaminants or pollutants or other types of things that are locked up in the body of that animal. And, you know, when you think about all the different kinds of scientific ways you could query and study a specimen like that and then think that there's 21.9 million of them in this institution alone, you know, then you start to be thinking about, wow, that is the incredible global value of an institution like ours. We're just one. You know, there are... Um, at least billions, perhaps tens of billions of physical natural history objects like that that have been tucked away specifically for research study uh, across the globe, across the big natural history museums of the world. In this part of the world, we are by far the biggest, and so we carry you know, that water in a really important way for science uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. And now I want to reference a fellow mammologist of yours, Tim Flannery. He's someone who, you know, started in mammology, worked in mammology at the Australian Museum and then sort of transitioned to climate change and is now one of, you know, Australia's biggest advocates for that type of science. Um, I'm wondering, how do you think climate change has changed the role of scientists and how has it specifically changed your role as a mammologist? Yeah, great question. So Tim Flannery is uh, a... Uh, 
a person very close to my own heart, my own upbringing. He was one of my most important mentors along the way in becoming the scientist that I am. Um, he was my PhD advisor, and um, I spent, I've spent um, two decades on and off working in, in New Guinea, for example, where Tim famously used to work, and I sort of uh, came up as a young uh, scientist at the time when he was transitioning out of that uh, heavy field work role and he kind of passed it along to me, so passed the baton. So that was uh, fantastic. And I've been able to watch, right, Tim, you know, over the years go from uh, uh, museum scientists doing this kind of, you know, work behind the scenes, naming species, collecting materials and, and lodging them in our our collections and archives. And, you know, as he did that, it takes it takes some time, right? You, you don't notice it after one or two or five years of work. But as a scientist, when you're going to, say, the highlands of New Guinea or, you know, any particular uh, important natural part of the planet, you know, after five, 10, 15, 20 years of that kind of work, you know, you have observed enough to kind of see you know, on the time scale of how the world changes, how it is changing, right? And one, that was important for Tim. Tim actually started to see, I think, you know, working in the highlands of New Guinea, how things like vegetation were shifting and how certain species were becoming rarer or where you caught one 20 years ago, you don't see them anymore. And learning those things for real, you know, seeing that on the ground. And um, he went from someone who knew climate change was important um, to realizing that you know, it is on some level an existential threat to so much of the um, biology of our planet, to so, you know, to, to so much of the way that the plants and animals of our world have adapted to the environments around them. And now, you know, with um, some basic chemistry knowledge, a little bit of greenhouse gas chemistry knowledge, we can all do a math on, on the back of an envelope and understand, you know, the way that humanity's use of the planet in industrial ways you know, has changed that dramatically and is changing it very fast. So climate change is one of the issues of our time, no doubt about it. And you know, we often think about it as the way that it's going to be affecting us and human societies and our, um, our children and rising generations, and that's as it should be because we need to be thinking about all of those things. But you know, as, and as people who are thinking about nature, you know, it's also fundamentally transforming every ecosystem in our planet and the way that uh, the, the, you know, thinking about life on Earth, all the beetles or marine invertebrates or mammals, you know, they sum up, we study them as species, but they sum up together and into these incredible complex things called ecosystems, right? How many beetles are there? How many moths are there? Huge numbers, but they assemble themselves into these systems that ultimately um, are these most kind of the most complex thing you can think of, um, natural environments, ecosystems, that when taken together, sum up to actually make the world tick. They're actually what makes the world tick. We tend to forget living, perhaps, you know, many of us in urban environments, things like that. We look at the world around us and we kind of take it as a given that this is a, this is a human world. And, you know, we, our day-to-day -day struggles are very much about interpersonal things and, you know, how uh, humans work with humans. But it's easy to forget that the air that we breathe, all the food that we eat, you know, all the water that we drink, you know, ultimately relies on the natural environment and these cycles that essentially the global, you know, ecosystem summed up. That's where everything that actually makes anything that matters, you know, is tied up. We can forget that, right? Living in a concrete jungle and whatnot. So, um, you know, 
the climate is changing. It's not, it's not the only issue of our time. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of the import, most important. It may not even be the most important, but it's a huge one that a lot of people have, you know, chosen to overlook for too long. And, um, you know, we've faced incredible environmental challenges, you know, in society again and again. Like, every generation has some of their own. This is uh, a funny point of comparison, perhaps, at first, but I think about whaling sometimes, right? Industrial whaling. You go back 200 years ago, and this was one of the world's largest global industries. And this was the source of a lot of the raw material for the planet, for, like, the indu you know, industrial aspects all over the planet. The oil that people were using to heat their homes and light their houses, you know? Think about the way you use energy. It's crazy energy. to think it, about that now. It's crazy to think about, but that was a huge mm. global industry. It, it, you know, it's involved with the rise of the United States industrially. It's, you know, involved with um, a lot of, you know, aspects of, of uh, exploration and European expansion. And so things like that. And, and but then you realize, well, it's even in, well into the 20th century that that continues to build and it continues to grow such that, you know, 50 years ago, we were almost in danger of losing all the whales out of our oceans, you know, for this remarkable aspect of industrial whaling. And it, what did it take? It took a lot of global pressure and kind of almost every country on the planet taking a hard look at this and saying, we are going to need some international organization. And it's going it to have to involve, if not every, almost every country to come to the table and to draw up international agreements that, you know, we're going to change this. Nobody needs this whale meat and this whale bone and this whale oil enough um, to, you know, allow this to run rampant and change the planet that we know and love. You know, but that was a huge sea change, you know, and it required, you know, everyone to kind of get vocal and it required governments to have a change of conscience. And, you know, that happened again when... Um, when the ozone layer was under threat. That happened in a big way. So here we have industrial pollutants, you know, chlorofluorocarbons, you know, being poured out by, you know, in order to make things, various products, you know, air conditioning, things that, you know, make our lives a little easier. Um, and again, consciousness needed to be uh, really grabbed a hold of. People, the countries of the world needed to come to a table and broker international arrangements and say, you know, this is too important to us, right? Our health and the way that, you know, energy and UV comes in from the sun, this is an existential threat. This is a global public health crisis. We need to get on top of it. And the world did remarkably, you know, remarkably fast, all things considered. And what we've seen, you know, since that moment of international agreement and organization uh, was, you know, shifting back to a, a happier environmental outcome, right? Uh, gradually, the ozone uh, layer, you know, uh, uh, building itself back up. So whale populations are, you know, in some cases, looking great now. You know, the ozone layer is on the right trajectory. Can we do this for climate as well? We absolutely can. But it absolutely takes the conscience of all the world's big governments to come to the table and, you know, say this is important enough to everybody that we are going to do this now. And, you know, some of this is spiraled out of control. We're going to have to go even further. You know, we're going to have to dial it back and pull it back in. And, you know, uh, we're going to have to make 
plans, you know, uh, of various kinds to make sure that the world in 100 years doesn't become way too hot for everything that we know about the world to operate as it should. But we're in danger of that now. And someone like Tim Flannery, um, you know, puts himself out there by uh, making it clear that that's the case. And it's pretty remarkable that in 2020, you know, there's anyone, let alone a lot of people, that would want to get in the way of that at all, would want to get in the way in any way of, you know, uh, you know, making sure that the world is in the right livable band of temperature decade upon decade ahead of us, because that's not where we're headed right now. So it's time to really, really come to the table, just like we did with whaling and chlorofluorocarbons and ozone, to say, now's the time, let's agree, and let's get it done. Mm. Well, I love ending on a positive to-do list. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting today with me, Chris. A pleasure. Thanks, Angela. And I hope you've enjoyed uh, the Reopen Australian Museum. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.